the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Many of you out there perhaps are uh, part-time gardeners or like to, uh, what's the word, not tweak? I'm trying to think, what is it, What is the proper, appropriate term here, Jarrell? You, you, you love to meddle around in the garden. <laughs> uh, your spouse might say occasionally killing plants. Uh, certainly that's, uh, that's one of my uh, badges that I wear none too proudly. But uh, you know, then again, you might have some luck and success once in a while. You certainly know that there are times and seasons when older plants, more mature plants, uh, begin facing some growth challenges. Uh, seemingly, no matter how much water you feed them or how oftentimes you uh, turn them to make sure they're facing the light, uh, their leaves begin to get yellowed. Uh, the edges perhaps begin to, to grow brown. There is a lot less new growth, and the older growth, quite frankly, is looking dingy, tired, and worn out. So what do you do? Is there a way in which you can revitalize and bring new life to that plant and hope that it will um, somehow will carry on further? Well, one of the big methods is plants like that oftentimes become uh, root-bound, particularly when they're potted plants. And so it requires going in, uh, removing the potting uh, around them, uh, trimming the root, which sometimes can be a painful process, and then, of course, replanting that plant in new soil, fresh fertilizer, lots of water lots of sunlight and the vast majority of times in fact that replanting process as a time consuming and perhaps painful as it might be in shock to the plant initially so can be the long-term solution to giving that plant a new lease on life Let's think of that same analogy when it comes to churches and church planting. Does it sound familiar? A congregation that's been around for many, many years, many generations, and at the edges is starting to look sort of drab and dreary and tired. There is no new growth, and so oftentimes the decision comes, gee, is it time to just put that plant out of its, or that church, out of its misery, or are there things that we can do to replant that church in a similar fashion the way we do a replanting of a plant a house plant to give it a new lease on life well my next guest tonight i think would suggest the answer is absolutely so he is a gardener of sorts a missionary uh, author and um, the professor at uh, Beeson divinity school in birmingham alabama he spent uh, years in bangkok thailand and uh, works as a, a church uh, advisor in many respects helping churches discover how a dying congregation can grow once again. The book is called Replant, How a Dying Church Can Grow Again. Dr. Mark Devine, great to have you on the program tonight. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. This is a, this is a painful process, isn't it? Uh, number one, I think oftentimes painful for congregations to admit uh, that they are in fact uh, facing a very uncertain future. It really can be, and um, 
uh, I really didn't set out to become sort of a you know a church a consultant or a fixer, but uh, once I became a professor and could no longer serve as full-time pastor, I found myself really not knowing what to do with myself, and so I ended up becoming uh, an, uh, a serial interim pastor for churches that are without a pastor. And then after the first couple of those, I really found myself in a new uh, exciting ministry uh, with a growing mission field because 80% of churches in North America are declining. And I really found myself um, really looking at these churches very differently than it is just a way station for the next pastor, but trying to think, well, wait a minute, this church has been declining for so long, they've had one pastor after another. Is there something I can do in my unique position? since I don't want to stay permanently, that might help this congregation grow again. And I haven't always been successful, but it's really been exciting uh, to try to help in these ways. You speak throughout the book of your experiences, specifically at um, the Calvary Baptist Church. Let's talk a bit about that. Uh, this is a church that you describe as having been in its third decade of decline, and, and certainly one of the big indicators that there was lots of trouble afoot. It went through the totality of eight pastors, four permanent, four interim, in just 10 years. That That's, what, like a year and a half or so per pastor? That certainly doesn't bode well in terms of the healthiness of that church, or <laughs> the very least, the stick to it to this, uh, of those called the lead. I'm told that the average pastorate now, tenure of a, of a pastor in churches today in North America, hovers around two years. That's hard to believe. But um, it really is an indication of sort of the, the, the pathology, the lack of vision, uh, and the difficulties. And what happens oftentimes in these churches is that after the first two or three pastors uh, stay a very short time and leave, um, the, the congregation itself lapses into a pattern of behavior that prevents it from being led. Inevitably, uh, highly motivated laypersons, often very well-meaning, begin to occupy leadership turf that really belongs to a pastor. And these congregations become, without even realizing it, virtually unleadable. And so for all the good intentions that many might have and the pockets of ministry that often exist in these churches, they're really, they've rendered themselves uh, resistant to any real visionary, uh, strong pastoral leadership. And usually until that uh, is changed, it usually is. Most of these churches never come back. Well, in, in all fairness, uh Dr. Devine, you, you speak in the book of, of the fact that there had been individuals that were in these positions, and I would imagine to the greatest degree, many of them um, out of necessity. When we look at that high degree of turnover, I mean, suddenly from transitioning from one pastor to another, there are areas of need and care within uh, the greater life and body of the church and pastoral ministry that need time and need attention. And so uh, it would seem like a lot of these folks might have stepped into those positions 
positions, uh, probably of, of good heart and will. But then uh, what are you suggesting? Something happens along the way where they they kind of uh, dig their heels in and suddenly it, it moves from here's a, a deacon so-and-so or sister sus and such. So God bless her is willing to step in while we're in the middle of a, a crisis here. Pastors left. We've got an intern pastor who's trying to get the lay of the land. And so they're willing to come in and help out. And then what? It turns into uh, suddenly from um, good hearted ministry to taking advantage of personal perks and privileges? A lot of the decisions that a pastor might make or lead the congregation to make end up being made by powerful lay people, and they get used to doing that, and they like to do it. And once a congregation sees pastors come and go quickly a few times, they they are slow to treat the next pastor as though he will be around for, for very long. And therefore, his ability to gain their trust and lead is, uh, is greatly diminished. And then if a pastor comes in who's bound and determined to lead, then he faces resistance with entrenched sort of turf, uh, uh, turf battles where various people have staked out some turf that uh, they see as theirs and they're protective of it. But as long as the pastor can't lead... Uh, you know, if he if he can't have influence on that turf, then he really can't lead the congregation, and these pastors eventually give up and and they go. If you've just joined the conversation, we're, we're talking about a lot of the principles that gardeners use in bringing new life to a dying plant by replanting it. We're all familiar with the concept of church planting. What about the concept of church replanting? Some lessons on how a dying church can grow again. Dr. Mark Devine with us tonight. Maybe your church is going through some of this. Maybe you have individuals in your church that, as Dr. Devine suggests, have stepped in to help out during difficult times and suddenly now are intentionally or otherwise engaged in making decisions and taking on areas of authority, quite frankly, biblically, belong to the pastor, but out of emergency or short-term necessity, they have taken. And suddenly now it's gone from, let me step in to help out, to essentially a, a usurping of position, authority, and spiritual responsibility that ultimately does not bode well for the life of that church. If you're in that kind of circumstance, you may want to just simply eavesdrop on our conversation. Maybe you want to dive a little bit deeper, and uh, I can understand not wanting to get out on the radio and uh, reveal your name or the church that you're involved with, but time out. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Dr. Mark Devine with us tonight. A look at replant, how a dying church can grow again. He had such an experience. You had served as a missionary in, in Thailand. At what point and how, what was the process, uh, Dr. Devine, where they, they called you to uh, First Calvary? And when you got there, what kind of a shape did you find the place in? Well, I was just available uh, to serve as a supply preacher for churches that did not have a pastor or an interim pastor. And uh, there were people who knew that I had helped a troubling church, and they recommended me to this congregation. And I had a meeting with two of the leading lay uh, leaders there, and they they talked a really 
strong game, but we need leadership. They were they were down to around oh 150 or so in a sanctuary, beautiful sanctuary that would seat 600. It looked like a little Spurgeon's Tabernacle, plunked down in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, but once I got in there, I realized that that this church was virtually unleadable, and so they talked about leadership, but really they they lapsed into a state where they really. Uh, treated pastors as an employee with discreet duties. You know, preach a sermon, uh, do the wedding, do the funeral, do some pastoral care, but really leadership was not on the cards at all. And I began to think about that, pray about that, and dream about was there, is there a way that this congregation uh, could reverse its decline and start to reach people for Christ in that neighborhood again. In your book, you refer to them as members of the in the leg cartel, which I thought was brilliant. Uh, there is the sense of, of really sabotaging pastoral leadership because they've essentially usurped pastoral responsibility and authority. And we hear this every once in a while, particularly it seems to be uh, an excuse or pretext by so-called megachurches where we wish to have, a, uh, there's an administrative pastor, there's a pastoral pastor, there's the preaching pastor, uh, and, and we've divided the duties up so much so that it doesn't at the end of the day seem to be one individual that is accountable to God or, or responsible for anything. And then all this little laity running around as if they're controlling a, a, a small corporation or miniature fiefdom. And one of the, the developments that you see in many of these uh, these historic churches that are in decline is that um, they will uh, resist on the basis, the stated basis, that they are protecting a great tradition. And that was one of the means by which they thwarted attempts to lead at First Calvary. But one of the most paradoxical and surprising things that happened uh, in Kansas City at this church is that I began to study the history of the church. I found that they had taken radical decisions many times that were risky, that, that required a lot of faith, that, had res- that were made in order to make the changes needed to advance the gospel. And so when I came to them with the, you know, the notion that we might consider joining with another congregation that had demonstrated uh, leadership and effectiveness in a cultural context just like ours, and they would provide the leadership, uh, I was able to take their history and say, if we face this opportunity According to our tradition, we will be open to significant change, and it kind of turned the tables on the you know the self-appointed protectors of the tradition at that church. And you know, I don't wish to. I want to get in trouble here with listeners and and seem to come off as if I I have utter disregard for tradition or uh, a sense of uh, spiritual legacy or history. But at the end of the day, as we as we measure it purely by the yardstick of Scripture, I mean, uh, am I wrong in saying that when we kind of distill it all down, it comes to a couple of basic uh, principles here? Um, certainly, the Great Commission, the Great Commandment, disciple 
discipleship, evangelism. I mean, that that's kind of the, uh, the primary role of the church, and all of that seems to be very forward-looking. I, I, I know that the Lord certainly is appreciative if a church has had a history of, uh, you know, having great men preaching in pulpits, and many have been run one to Christ down through the decades or the centuries, but uh, why do I have a lingering sense of sort of a, um, okay, and so what have you done for me lately? As part of of the way <laughs> the Lord Himself might uh, might judge a church like that. Well, the irony here was that I led the church to look forward by looking back, just like you did. You reached backward to the Bible to to talk about what churches should do now, and that's what I did with this congregation. They had had a tradition of doing some really risky uh, but but doctrinally sound faith infused things in their past and so the people who were who were touting themselves as the protectors of the tradition really weren't protecting the tradition they were protecting recent uh turf that they had occupied and the way decisions had been made over the last 20 years. But when you look at what had been happening over the last century, then that was a different kind of tradition. And you could find there many times in the church's history where they had made discipleship and evangelism and care for those who are hurting front and center. And so it wasn't a matter of don't look back just look forward. There's like one passage in the Bible that says that and people uh, gloss over the hundreds of passages where God says, remember, don't forget, remember, don't forget. And so the problem was not that they were looking back and remembering, but they weren't looking back far enough, deep enough, they weren't remembering the right things, and then facing the present and the future on the basis of the best of their past. There's a pastor right now in Chicago who's helping restart churches the way I did, and one of the things he says that I love is that when we restart churches, we don't erase their history. We have a shared history. But if that history's rooted in gospel advance, then they will not dig in and become a dysfunctional church that resists leadership. Well, and again, I, I have no objection to, to history. In fact, I'm a, a tremendous fan of it, and I believe standing on a, a, a tradition and a, a, a sense of uh, uh, connectedness, if you will, uh, down through the generations, I think that's wonderful and to be applauded and, and to be stood upon. But you stand on that foundation and that rich history that should then drive you and compel you to move forward, not to become paralyzed in simply saying, gee, look how great we used to be, uh, that, that never allows you to then have that forward-looking sense in terms of, you know, our, our, our relationship with Christ is one that continues to grow and expand. Uh, so, too, ought that process of outreach and evangelism and discipleship, as we mentioned. And so uh, that sitting of the history and allowing ourselves to become paralyzed where we're just stuck in it, isn't that a largely what a lot of these churches wind up dying from? That's exactly what they die from. And uh, so that and that is what I talked to them about. But now what I didn't tell them is that they're dying because they care about the tradition. Actually, what I did was expand their view of tradition 
which then shamed them when they uh, didn't put the advance of the gospel first. And so I kind of uh, claim the tradition ground rather than ceding it to those who were, who had a selective view of it. And to the newer congregations, even if they're growing, let's say a new uh, church, uh, new leadership comes in and the church starts to grow, if they treat the past with uh, a case or a or just something that's you know good for historical you know trivial pursuit, then they end up with a with a maybe a a temporary you know temporary life and and growth, but it ends up being very very shallow because they don't they don't they don't really grasp that what they've been bequeathed. Uh, uh, from the past. And so I think there's a message about the past that both sides tend to be getting wrong. Mm. Uh, And uh, and the the, the biggest light that shines on that is that some of those who want to be sort of fiercely forward-looking, they keep turning back to uh, the Reformers, turning back to the the Bible, and I want to say, okay, now now you're talking my language. So we have to be cautious in finding that balance because some are oftentimes um, uh, too reticent to to move or look forward and they wish to just singularly cling to the past and others are too rapid or in a rush to, to dispense with the past in the process of moving forward and there's something to be said about the mixture of the two. Let's take a time out on that point. Dr. Mark Devine is with us. We are talking about church replanting, what that means, what that looks like, what that might mean to you and your congregation. Stay with us. We'll time out, update on traffic, then back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to the conversation with Dr. Mark Devine. Let's get into some of your calls. We're talking about church replanting. We'll head off first to Hayward. Paul, good afternoon. Welcome. You're on KFAX with Dr. Mark Devine. Uh, Good afternoon. Thanks for taking my call. I've been um, checking out a lot of churches. I grew up in the Bay Area, grew up in a real large church, and have been looking around uh, and visiting churches for the last 10 years or so. And I'm seeing one thing that's common in them because they are declining. And I'm asking you, uh, Pastor, if if you see this. uh, One of the churches that I, I attend regularly there's about 1,200 people going there. And on one Sunday, the pastor asked by a raise of hands of how many people in 2013 had led anybody to the Lord. Less than 12 hands went up out of over 400 people. So what I'm starting to understand with this is that uh, people are going to uh, church as if they are, you know, out of duty. They're getting jobs. They're... they're, they're uh, uh, sacred cow ministries that they occupy for 25 years and won't let anybody in and and they're not learning to evangelize and so this church that I've been attending now for nearly three years uh, I haven't been invited to one person's house yet uh, or out to lunch Um, they have the glad handing thing and and you know shaking the hands get up and shake your neighbor's hands all that stuff but, but they're not teaching what Paul said about um, uh, the gift of hospitality. Mm. And the gift of hospitality, I think, is what's missing in the churches, because if a pastor does leave a church all of a sudden, 
you know, for whatever reason, he dies, you know, whatever reason, the church should be able to maintain itself because the people have already learned how to really be a family as well as be a family to their, their neighbors and their co-workers. In most cases, most neighbors don't even know a Christian lives next door. They've not, they've not, they're not being taught hospitality. So what, what do you see? Do you see that as being something? Wow, some really good observations. What about that, Dr. Devine? I want to tout a, a church in Columbus, Ohio, uh, related to this issue. It's called Xenos. And my uh, youngest son is a, is a, he's a student in, in Columbus, and he's a member of that church. And they, for many years, have made discipleship uh, the heart and center of what they want to be about. They don't want anything to distract them from it. And it's a remarkable thing. And so they're, they're most strong in the ways that, that this church that you've spoken of uh, is weak. And I will say this, the trend is that nominal Christianity is going to weaken. And the the church is is losing market share, but the churches that survive uh, and thrive in this new environment are going to be stronger because people are not going to use their time to be involved in in churches uh, that are not really meaningful and relevant to them. But I certainly believe that one of the great weaknesses is just what you've spoken about, and that is... Can, can disciples make other disciples? Well, there goes a real important key because whether you talk about a church learning what hospitality is or or the keys to evangelism, I mean, doesn't this really come down to the matter of of a lack of real proper discipleship? I mean, how many people show up to church every Sunday and they're kind of there out of out of duty or out of habit or a sense of obligation, and yet they they don't know a lot about the Savior that they allege to serve and have never had the experience of ever sharing their faith with anyone. Absolutely, but I do think that kind of thing is peaking because fewer and fewer people are willing to do that anymore. And so uh, people who are in that state, they they are dropping out of church uh, in, in droves. I'm finding some really exciting things happening with pastors who are in their 40s uh, that I, you know, were my students uh, 20 years ago, and uh, they're they're planting and building churches that are really a great co- contrast in these in these areas. And I'm so I'm really quite hopeful uh, that we're going to see uh, we're, we're going to see stronger churches uh, in these areas in the future. You are you getting a sense that the emphasis on and I'm going to meddle here for a moment. Uh, one of the things that I'm pretty good at. <laughs> uh, there's been such an emphasis on so-called uh, church growth seminars, seeker-sensitive churches. It seems as if we have to have a plan and formula, most of which comes down to simply good entertainment, or not so good, uh, as a means of increasing the size of our church, which a lot of pastors, if they're honest about it, realize we're really only increasing the church by shifting the sheep from one one pasture to another. Are you suggesting then that you're starting to see a trend away from that and more back toward genuine discipleship, genuine evangelism, genuine church growth? Yes. 
And I, I believe that, um, you know, the, the church growth movement, beginning with seeker-sensitive and then uh, purpose-driven uh, and, and various things, that really the church growth movement has morphed and has been chastened. Uh, Bill Hybels himself, you know, uh, uh, launched a survey and, and an analysis of what was happening at his church. And he came out and said that all the problems that you decided are real, they are happening. And so this notion of um, sort of figuring out what people can take and tailoring your sermons to it and then try to do the discipleship in some other room in the church is really not working. And so nowadays, I think that you really, knowing the size of a church doesn't tell you that much about it. Uh, as a serial interim pastor, that's what I'm seeing. That churches are very different. There's a lot of trial and error going on, and that uh, a lot has been learned uh, about uh, the ineffectiveness of watering anything down. And and perhaps the the big lesson here needs to be unlearning of what we thought were so-called experts of teaching us how to do church right, and relearning the fact that all the keys that are necessary are right there in front of us. It's a little book. In fact, it's sold pretty well, I understand. If you're in the right spot, you even know the author personally. Uh, the book, of course, is called The Bible. Another one that I might recommend, uh, secondary to that, that's not a bad one either, particularly on this topic, is the one written by Dr. Mark Devine, Replants, How a Dying Church Can Grow Again. And uh, we appreciate the insights into this uh, very complicated topic. And uh, Dr. Devine, hopefully we can persuade you to come back for more and we can dive a little bit deeper. And uh, again, our thanks to Dr. Mark Devine. The book, by the way, available through David C. Cook Publications or at uh, the usual suspects, including Amazon.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to Lifeline. Craig Roberts, along with our special guest in this edition of the program, he's Dr. Greg Smalley, Executive Director of Marriage and Family Formation at Focus on the Family. He co-hosts Everyday Relationships and is the president and founder of the Smalley Relationship Center. You can get more information on the web, in addition to information about his more than 40 books on the topic, at smalleymarriage.com. That's smalleymarriage.com. Dr. Smalley, just before the break, we were talking talking about the need to to kind of step back from the conflict instead of just trying to pile through, because that piling through process often means just making a lot of noise, uh, working a lot, very hard to be heard, but not really hearing. Right. Um, And you made mention, I found it fascinating toward the end of the last segment about the Chinese character for hearing that has to do with both open eyes, open ears, and an open heart. So I guess it's kind of pulling back, moving into neutral corners, so to speak, and taking a count. It's amazing how many arguments will will suddenly build up and gain momentum, and that train is heading down the track with, with no brakes. When we take a moment to step back and really ask ourselves the question, what is this all about? We either find out that there's a whole lot to do about nothing, or that it's connected to some other hurt or pain that happened in our life that, that might have just been sort of reactivated by something that our spouse did or said. That's right. 
That's right, and that's why I, I'm I'm telling people that that usually it's not that we can't communicate, that we've got to learn some new communication method. I'm telling you, the problem of why we have a hard time communicating is when your heart closes, you've got these buttons that are all stirred up, and you're frustrated, you're shut down, you're now in a reaction mode, and that's why the, the, the biggest, most important step in learning how to communicate through conflict is you dealing with you, and you can't do that in the presence of your spouse. You really do need to step back, and, and that's why I always tell people when you're sort of in this timeout spot, what you're trying to do is, one, there, there is power in putting a name to how you're feeling. And again, when we're in the middle of a conflict, we're not even able to think about how am I feeling right now and put a word to that. And, and yet there's research that was done that showed that when in the middle of an argument, when people separate and they, and they think through, okay, what is it that I'm feeling right now? I'm feeling you know, devalued, disrespected, uh, uh, not good enough, like a failure. I mean, when you put a word to how you're feeling, it, it physiologically calms you down. It, 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 they see on these, these brain scans to where the, the amygdala, which is your fight or flight center, it's kind of the emotional part of your brain, brain is all lit up. When you identify how you feel, the, the brain scans show that, that all of a sudden that information moves to the prefrontal cortexes, which is how, where you make good decisions. Mm. And so even, even the act of simply going, all right, I'm separated now, I'm on my own, what, what, yeah, what, how do I feel? What is, what's the word that I would use? It just, it has tremendous power. It's that simple. And then I, I think as Christians, what's so cool is that we take then those emotions to the Lord and we're asking for His truth. What is true about me? Is it true that I'm a failure? Is it true that I'm being disrespected? What's true about my wife? You know, and, and I, and I love that, that, that so, I think there's so many verses. That, that talk about how, 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 you know, God is truth, that he gives us the spirit of truth, the spirit of truth will lead us to all truth, you know, that you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And that's what I, I love you. When you're then able to do that, you now can come back in and just do what you were born to do, which is you can talk through things with your spouse when you're calmed down and your heart's open. And you know, it's at really the end of that the, simple. And at the end of the day, reopening those lines of communication or sometimes establishing them for the first time as much as that seems to be uh, particularly intimidating particularly for us guys that don't do real good good job emoting uh, and we, we we get very intimidated by this idea in you know, that sense that well my wife does all the talking and I do all the listening things of that sort you've put together a list of five daily relational moments that I think dr. Smalley really go a long way toward teaching us just how easy it can be to communicate at that level so that the needs are getting met by by both sides of the of the couple take a moment if you would in the the four three or four minutes that we have left in our conversation just walk us through if you would these five daily important relational moments absolutely you know i in 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 why i think these moments are so important is that i think you could you could kind of boil everything down to doing this. If you want to have a great marriage, you need to, one, learn how to manage conflict well. But then on the other hand, you've got to learn how to invest, proactively invest in your marriage every day. 
marriage doesn't have cruise control. You can't set a setting and think it's going to be okay. So as long as you're managing conflict, investing in your marriage, I mean, I'm telling you, you're going to have a good marriage. And I think one of the best ways to invest in your marriage, is instead of adding all kinds of new things to your already busy plate, you know, because, Craig, I, I see that, that so many people are just were so busy, exhausted, worn out, too much going on, overflowing plate, that when I tell people, hey, instead of adding, you know, five more things you need to do now for your marriage, what if we just looked at what's going on every day and take advantage of those, use those everyday moments to strengthen your marriage. For example, every day you're gonna leave, leave the house you know, during the work week. How you choose to leave your home can either strengthen your marriage or take away from your marriage. And, and, and what we know is if you take a moment and just, you know, let's say you, you pray for your spouse, you encourage them and, and, and give each other a kiss goodbye, that right there, you've strengthened your marriage. That should take no more than 10 seconds. See, you're not adding something else. You will leave the house. How you choose to leave can, can strengthen your marriage. You're going to return home. You know, you, how you come home and re-enter your house in the evening can be used to strengthen your marriage or not. So when I come in, do I beeline for the TV? Do I beeline for the kids? Or do I walk up to my wife and say, hey, great to see you. You know, love you. Give her a kiss. Can't wait to spend time with you tonight. You mean just something that simple? Again, not at you. Don't add anything. You're going to walk into your home. Just walk in, into your home in a way that's going to strengthen your marriage. Every you're going to fall asleep at some point. How you say good night to your spouse can strengthen your marriage. Simply taking thirty seconds to pray for your spouse, to thank him or her for something they did throughout the day that you appreciated. Thanks for, hey, picking up my dry cleaning today. That was a big help. I mean, you see what I'm saying? It's just, it's, it's identifying some key moments. You know, during the day as we're gone, you know, can I not send a quick little text message to my wife? I mean, I've got to be gone. Why not just send her a text message and, and just tell her, love you thinking about her? I actually did this the other day. And accidentally, I mean, I got into sort of this, this crazy little message to my wife, sent it to my boss <laughs> by mistake. And so he texts me back going, please tell me this was meant for your yeah, wife. I love you thinking about yeah, you. Absolutely. <laughs> and I said, no, it's for you. But uh, that made our meeting awkward. But anyway, <laughs> but you see what I'm saying? I mean, there, there are moments. You know, for you, the moment might be um, we're, we're taking our kids to their sporting practice. You know, well... Can you use that to, to ask each other questions? You can listen to the radio. You can do a bunch of stuff. You can be on the phone. Or we can ask each other just some, some great questions. Hey, you know, what, you know, how'd today go? How are you feeling? How are things going between you and the kids? You know, what's one thing God's teaching you as of late? You see, there, there are moments that go on that I think most of us just let these moments go by. And, and, and let's take those back and use them as things that can really strengthen our marriage. And, of course, the irony is it doesn't take a lot of time. It doesn't take a very little minimal amount of effort. It's simply giving a greater sense of importance to our spouse, to a sense of honoring them and valuing them. What's the old saying? It's, you know, it's the little things in life that count. Right. And it would be amazing to see how far. And I would just I want to challenge both the ladies and the men in the audience. Try it. Oh, you don't understand how difficult things are in my marriage right now. Purpose in your heart today to start tomorrow. 
when you get up in the morning, compliment your spouse. Honey, I'm glad that uh, you're my spouse. I hope you have a great day. Um, speak words of encouragement into their life as, you know, your husband is going off and, you know, he's got the big meeting today. Uh, say some words of encouragement. Stop at the door for a minute, guys, before you're leaving and saying, honey, I know it takes a lot of time and energy to, to maintain this household. I know you've got a big agenda today. You've got to take the kids to soccer practice and you've got a doctor's appointment. You've got to go shopping and all these things. I just want to let you know I value you and I recognize and appreciate the hard work that you do in creating such a loving home for us. Wow, how far that will go. And then, as Dr. Smalley points out, look, even the guys, we got time to check the box scores in the middle of the day. Send a quick text. Try not to send it to your boss, though. <laughs> and, let, and let your spouse know, thinking of you, babe, I hope you're having a great day. Can't wait to see you tonight. When you arrive back home, pause for a moment. You realize that your spouse, if she's been home all day, uh, and maybe young kids in your family, she's been really deprived of any adult communication. She's she's eager to connect with you. You, on the other hand, you've been out in the working world all day long. You don't want another conversation. Find a moment, if you can, between the two of you to just acknowledge each other and each other's needs for a moment. And then, finally, as you end the day, uh, to show a sense of gratitude and appreciation, a moment in prayer together. And if you implement these steps, I think you'll see an amazing turnabout in your marriage relationship. Dr. Greg Smalley, Executive Director of Marriage and Family Formation at Focus on the Family. More information, too, on the web at his website, smalleymarriage.com. And uh, Dr. Smalley, thanks so much for the time today. Oh, Craig, my pleasure. Thanks for all that you're doing to encourage marriage. You bet. Keep up the good work on your end as well. There's Dr. Greg Smalley from Focus on the Family. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for donald trump to hire i find out the worst enemy that i'm going to face in my life is right here in america they took my assessment and they wanted me to change it i was like i'm not changing it they had to get rid of flynn with in-depth interviews archival footage and never before seen personal record to the man behind the headlines i just felt like i was drowning flynn deliver the truth whatever the cost available now watch it today go to salemnow.com salemnow.com